Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire." Gracious God, we ask that you would prepare our hearts to accept your word, that we may receive what you have revealed, that we may do what we have commanded. Lord, nourish us today in the ways of eternal life, we pray in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, continuing in our series in the Gospel of Matthew, as you move into chapter 3, One thing you will immediately notice is Matthew fast forwards about 25 years. There's a a leapfrog of about a 25 year span between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. And if Matthew's purpose was to write an exhaustive biography of Jesus... That would be a very odd move that would strike us as just being a little bit off. But I would submit to you this morning, and I think this is where most evangelical scholars land. That's not Matthew's primary purpose. His primary purpose is not to offer an exhaustive biography of Jesus. Gospel writing is slightly different from biographical writing, although it does include an element of biography. But I think the main purpose of Matthew is not so much an exhaustive account of the life of Christ. I think Matthew's main purpose is to explain how it is that Jesus is the Savior. How is Jesus the Messiah? How is Jesus the Christ? And so his arrangement of things and his development of things, much less concerned with chronology, much more concerned with theology. This is a theological arrangement that is driving Matthew with the idea of showing us how it is that Jesus is the Savior. And so you remember he opened up in the very first chapter 
telling us Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one. Jesus is the son of David. That is, he is the heir to an eternal throne. Jesus is the son of Abraham. That is, he is the the seed in which all of the nations, as promised to Abraham, are going to ultimately be blessed. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the Christ. But he wants us to see Jesus is not the Christ that they would have or that we probably would have expected if we were concocting this ourselves. So I got up this morning and my routine every day of life, I believe, is to put in my contact lenses. I'm blind as a bat without contacts or glasses. First time in my life this morning, I get up, I put in my contacts, and for about 10 minutes, I just keep thinking to myself, something is off. I don't know what it is, but something's just off. I realized after about 10 minutes, I swapped my contact lenses this morning. And my eyes are different, so I have two different prescriptions. So I had my left eye on my right, my right eye on my left, and it, it took about 10 minutes to realize I'm seeing, I think I'm seeing okay. I'm seeing better than I am without contacts. But everything's off. I look far, it's a, I look close, it's a little off. And I thought to myself, I think this is a good analogy as to what Israel expected of the Messiah. Now you put yourself in the shoes of these ancient Israelites 2,000 years ago, right after this 400-year intertestamental period of silence and all the anticipations building, and you've got all these, these prophecies that this Messiah is coming, the Savior is coming, this anointed one is coming. You're doing the best you can. You're, you're reading these prophecies. You're coming up with your expectations. You're trying to see it for what it is. I, I think you have to give these folks credit They're doing the best they can with what they have to work with. They have these lenses that they're looking at these things through. But then the New Testament opens up. God enters into history. Christ is born. Matthew and the gospel writers and then later the apostles are telling us what all this means. And and I think you realize the lenses that they're viewing this from were skewed. They were off. They, they had their prescriptions a little mixed and a little backwards. And Matthew's bringing clarity to that. You, you got, you've got the right basic idea, but you're off in a few ways. And so a few very important ways. This Savior that you're expecting, and you're right to expect Him because He's been promised for so long, but he, He's not coming as this conquering warrior king. He's not coming with a primary um, objective of overthrowing the Roman Empire and setting up this nationalistic geopolitical kingdom on earth based out of Jerusalem. That's the expectation. And you see that as you get into the Gospels over and over. He is the Savior. He is the Messiah. He is the Anointed One. But He's first and foremost... Coming to save humanity from their sins. That's the category that their prescription lenses just wasn't quite focusing in on. That's a very different primary mission objective than to establish a militaristic geopolitical kingdom. 
And, and the conquering will come. And you see that as the New Testament unfolds and as the prescription gets dialed in a little more sharply. But that's not the primary objective. And that's certainly not the point of his first coming. And so Matthew already is cluing us in in those opening chapters that, yes, he's coming to conquer, but he's coming to conquer to sin and coming to conquer sin. And he's coming to sinners, but. What a twist of events and an unexpected reality. He's coming through sinners. And you see that in that opening genealogy. And you've got these fulfillment formulas where he's showing, look, the Exodus, you see this in chapter two. We saw this last time we were together. The Exodus in chapter two, it turns out that's a picture of a much more important exodus that Jesus is going to lead. And it's an exodus of leading his people out of sin and into everlasting rest and everlasting life. And yes, life is hard in a fallen world and tragically difficult things happen like the Babylonian captivity and like the death of children And he brings us to another fulfillment of prophecy. And he says, just like in the Old Testament, when God's people were comforted during those most difficult circumstances in life, Jesus is presented as the ultimate comfort to those who mourn as a fulfillment of prophecy. And then yet again, at the end of chapter two, it's not in the way you would expect, because as another fulfillment of prophecy, unexpectedly, He's coming from a nowhere backwater place on earth called Nazareth, where everybody agrees nothing good comes out of Nazareth. It's just that juxtaposition constantly of the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of God, and yet so unexpected in what he comes to do and how he comes to do it and, and how he presents himself. And you keep running into that, I think, in Matthew's gospel. And, and again, this morning uh, in our passage today, just he, he is the Messiah, but he's not the Messiah you would expect from a human perspective. And I just want to look at three points that I think drive this passage. The prophet in the wilderness, the baptism and the spirit. First, the prophet in the wilderness, John the Baptist, John in all three of the synoptic gospels is presented as somebody who just abruptly appears. He wasn't, and now he is. We don't get a backstory. We don't get much more than that. This is following a well-established ancient pattern that is a common theme for so many of the Old Testament prophets. I'll go ahead and tell you up front. I think Matthew is very clearly thinking of prophets like Elijah. You may remember our series this past summer in the life of Elijah. Elijah just showed up out of nowhere, out of the wilderness, and he's preaching fundamentally a message of repentance. And in a very similar fashion, you have John here, John the Baptist, He's described as living a very simple lifestyle, very simple clothes, very simple diet, very humble origin. It clearly, I think, is another juxtaposition, just just a jarring contrast 
with these religious elite Pharisees, these religious elite Sadducees, these religious elite scribes, they were known, they were notorious for dressing in luxury, living in luxury, and frankly, John the Baptist is just a poke in the eye. He's in so many ways just the opposite. He just comes in out of nowhere, no pedigree, no credentials, with humility and boldness, and he just brings a message of God. He is a voice. And as a voice, I would say John the Baptist is just the quintessential preacher. I look at John the Baptist as someone who tries to preach, and I think this is the center of the target. Just be a voice. I'm not the cook. I am the delivery. I don't cook it up. I dish it up. Just a voice. Just a messenger. Just a servant. And to the extent that the servant without messing anything up, without meddling, without changing it, to the extent that the servant is faithful to take the message and serve it up as a voice, as a megaphone. That's the extent to which the voice is successful, and that's how I look at John the Baptist. He is here to bring a message from God. It is simply the master's voice. What is that message It's as straightforward as can be. Repent. The kingdom is at hand. And he quotes a very important, again, prophetic message from the Old Testament, Isaiah 43. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. All three synoptic gospels. Quote that same passage from Isaiah 40. If you look at it in its context, Isaiah is preaching a message of comfort to God's people. They're, they're in exile, and he tells them, Be patient, deliverance is coming. But incredibly, if you look at it in the context of Isaiah 43, the idea there is that Yahweh is going to bring deliverance. Jehovah is going to bring deliverance. The the covenant God, the one true God, is going to bring deliverance. And here again, Matthew takes what in the Old Testament is attributed to God, a role of salvation, a role of deliverance, and, and he doesn't bat an eye to say this is fulfilled in Jesus. That That is shockingly significant. Very similar to this idea that only God can forgive sins. And yet in chapter 1, verse 21, he says, You'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's a role attributed to God alone. And yet the gospel writers have no problem attributing a role to God alone to Jesus, demonstrating that he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is God. He's God in the flesh. And John says, prepare the way because his kingly rule is coming. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
A whole lot has been written about that one phrase, the kingdom of heaven, and a very important related phrase, the kingdom of God. I think the basic idea, and we'll see this throughout, Lord willing, Matthew's gospel. I think the basic idea of the kingdom of heaven is the rule and reign of God. How does God rule and reign? Well, he rules and reigns in a number of ways, but one of the primary ways he rules and reigns is by coming into history as the Lord Jesus Christ and taking on human flesh. And typical in Jewish culture and custom, you don't mention God's name directly when you can avoid it. I think Matthew's being very sensitive to that when he uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. Sometimes you see the name or the phrase kingdom of God, and Matthew does use it. In fact, in Matthew 19, 23, he uses the two interchangeably. Uh, there's a lot that's been written on this, and a lot of people try to make the case the kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are two different things. I find that not very convincing, especially when you see them used interchangeably. But regardless, that's kind of getting into the weeds. The idea is God's rule is at hand. And his rule is at hand in Jesus. Jesus is coming. Repent and get ready. That's it. That's what John is saying. And he comes out of the wilderness. That's also very significant. He is a voice in the wilderness. That's another ancient pattern. If you think back to the Old Testament, 40 years in the wilderness, Israel spent. Moses spent time in the wilderness. David spent time in the wilderness. Elijah, you remember spent time in the wilderness. So many of the prophets, so many of God's people in the Old Testament have life-changing spiritual experiences in the wilderness. So he's taking another Old Testament ancient pattern and he's applying it to the life of Christ. And I think heavily, Referencing Elijah. In fact, in 2 Kings 1.8, you find almost an exact quote of Matthew 3.4. Elijah wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather. Look at what John wears. John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. You remember Elijah came out of the wilderness And he's preaching a message of repentance to King Ahab. The gospel writers present John the Baptist as this Elijah-like figure who comes out of the wilderness and he preaches the kingdom is at hand. Repent. Now, why is that significant? Well, If you'll turn back with me just a few pages to the Old Testament in the very last chapter of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter four, the closing of the Old Testament canon, verse five, Malachi four, five. The prophet closed the Old Testament canon saying this. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That is the closing of the Old Testament. That that is right before that 400 year, give or take, intertestamental period of silence. Fast forward 400 years later, here comes John the Baptist 
all three of the synoptic gospel writers present him as the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. He is the Elijah-like figure coming from the wilderness, preparing the way, heralding the coming of Jesus, who is the Christ. That's a very significant fulfillment of prophecy. And you say, well, he's not literally, literally Elijah. Well, he doesn't have to literally be Elijah. Maybe your contacts are off just a little bit and you need a little bit of, of a gospel adjustment. The gospel writers have no problem saying this is the Elijah-like figure. He is fulfilling the role in, in its most fundamental sense of heralding the coming of the kingdom and the message is to repent. Very quickly, let's look at the other two major points in our passage this morning. The baptism. That features prominently in Matthew chapter 3. Not a new concept. You, you think about the Old Testament. There's pourings everywhere. There's sprinklings everywhere. There's washings everywhere. Le- Le- Levitical priesthoods washing things all the time. Utensils, clothing, people, men, women, animals. Everything's getting washed for some type of ceremonial cleansing, for some kind of purification ritual. Also very commonly, and again, books are written about this, but I think there's general agreement. Baptism in particular in the Old Testament was understood as an important component for cleansing Gentiles and bringing in Gentile converts. If you were a Gentile in the Old Testament and you wanted to convert to Judaism, You would be washed. If you were a male, you would be circumcised and there would be some sacrifices involved. That's kind of the three-step process. But the baptism, the washing, was very important for Gentile converts and it symbolized the cleansing of sin. In fact, you have Old Testament language like new birth and birth from above and cleansing of sin. Those are not New Testament exclusive concepts. They're, They're plain off of Old Testament practices, Old Testament language. This isn't just brand new, dropped out of the sky in the New Testament. All these things have some kind of context and background. But there are two big differences, I think, in John's baptism here. Number one, it's not just for Gentiles. It's given to the Jews. And I think in context of what he says to the Pharisees and Sadducees, the point is really being made. It's not your Jewish heritage that saves you. It's not your genealogical descent from Abraham that saves you. It's not your bloodline that saves you. It's not who your dad is that saves you. And number two, it's looking forward with heavy eschatological significance to what's going to happen at the end of time. Look what he says at verse 7 to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. I think fundamental to this practice of baptism that John is introducing here, and Lord willing, we'll look at this a little more next week, is the idea that pedigrees won't save you, bloodlines won't save you, Your relationship to your father or who your grandmother was won't save you. Religious rituals won't save you. Fancy titles like Pharisee and Sadducee won't save you. What saves you is Jesus Christ. 
And the way you avail yourself of the salvation that is available from Jesus Christ alone is repentance. Being washed. Receiving this external washing that comes through the blood of Christ and the Spirit. And that leads us to the third point that's a major point in our passage this morning. The theme of the Holy Spirit. And again, that's not new. You find the Spirit at work throughout the Old Testament. Very opening verse of Genesis, the Holy Spirit is at work in the creation, displaying God's power. You look through the Old Testament, he's giving gifts to people. He's giving powers to people. He's gifting Saul. He's gifting Gideon. He's gifting Samson. He's giving temporary abilities to people. But there does seem to be a difference in what happens when you move into the New Testament, into the Gospels, the coming of Christ. And then, of course, this all culminates at Pentecost and Acts, this day coming, and the prophets looked at this too. Ezekiel 36 is a great example of this. That a day is coming when the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out in a much wider sense, in a much deeper sense, in a much more personal sense. That he's going to come and he's going to dwell in people and he's going to come and change the hearts of people. And he's going to, Ezekiel, write the law on the hearts of people. That the forgiveness of sins is going to be applied by the Holy Spirit, working in conjunction with Christ the Son, working in conjunction with the reading and proclamation of his word. These are all functions that come with the coming of Jesus. And here's the real point I think did not miss about John. As heavy an emphasis as John places on repentance, as heavy an emphasis as John places on forgiveness, as heavy an emphasis as John places on forgiveness, John does not claim to offer those things himself. John can't forgive you. John can't give you the Holy Spirit. John can't make you repent or repent for you. These are gifts that come from Jesus Christ alone. If you would like eternal life, if you would like forgiveness of sins, the Gospels, the message of Scripture is as clear as can be The way to eternal life, the way to the forgiveness of sins is repentance and belief in Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask the men to come forward and prepare the table.